You're listening to an ACA podcast. Welcome to the Australian Centre for Contemporary Art podcast. It's a pleasure to welcome you to our lecture series, Defining Moments, Australian Exhibition Histories, 1968 to 1999. To begin, we would like to sincerely acknowledge the Kulin Nations as sovereign custodians of the land upon which we work and welcome visitors at ACA, and we extend our respects to Elders past, present and emerging, and to all First Nations people. Defining Moments, Australian Exhibition Histories, explores critical exhibitions and projects that have shaped Australian art since 1968. The series traces the legacies of artists and curators, addresses the critical reception of significant selected projects, and reflects on a wide range of exhibitions and formats, from artist-run initiatives to new institutional models, as well as interventions in public space and remote communities. This year, in response to COVID-19, we are pleased to present the series as filmed illustrated lectures online, with the second season continuing to explore new models and modes of exhibition making that emerged in the 1980s and 90s. We are delighted to welcome Dr Stephen Gilchrist, lecturer of Indigenous art at the University of Sydney. Belonging to the Yamachi people, Stephen has curated numerous exhibitions in Australia and the United States and has written extensively on Indigenous art from Australia. In this lecture, Stephen will consider two major exhibitions, Aratjara, Art of the First Australians, presented in Dusseldorf at the Kunstsammlung Nordrhein-Westfalen in 1993, and Fluent, Emily Kame Ingware, Yvonne Kumatri, Judy Watson, presented in the Australian Pavilion at the Venice Biennale in 1997, as key examples of Indigenous curatorial practices that encode Indigenous philosophies of critical care and value and assert the importance of representational sovereignty. Please welcome Dr Stephen Gilchrist. I'd like to begin by acknowledging the Gadigal people on whose customary lands I'm now on. This place was named by the Gadigal, for the Gadigal, because of the Gadigal, and I pay my deep respect to their ancestors of the past, present and future who have been keepers and couriers of this knowledge. I would like to thank Max Delaney and the staff at the Australian Centre for Contemporary Art for inviting me to present this lecture and for the curators, writers and artists whose work has inspired it. I've been invited to discuss two important international exhibitions of Indigenous art in the 1990s that represented the growing presence of Indigenous art within sites of high international value. These exhibitions advocated for and enacted Indigenous curatorial mediation. Aratjara, Art of the First Australians, traditional and contemporary works by Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander artists, was a large touring exhibition that opened at Kudsamalung in Dusseldorf, 1993. The title of the exhibition means Messenger. The show then travelled to the Hayward Gallery in London and finally opened at the Louisiana Museum in Humlebeck, Denmark. The exhibition was seen by over 250,000 people and revealed a commitment to troubling the limits of critical language and exceeding the category of Indigenous art as it was understood and positioned at the time in Europe. The catalogue essays, which feature many Indigenous authored texts, mobilise much of the expansive thinking of the exhibition. Arajara was officially curated by Bernard Lutti, a Swiss artist and curator, but Lutti insisted that the exhibition could not be realised without significant Indigenous control and involvement. And for nearly a decade he worked with uh, many Indigenous people, including Gary Foley, 
Lynn Onis, Gary Lee and John Mundine to realise this vision. The deep involvement of Indigenous people in the planning and execution of the exhibition was one of its defining features. The other exhibition I will discuss is Fluent, which was the Australian contribution to the 47th Venice Biennale and was a significant milestone in the history of Indigenous curation. This exhibition in the Australian Pavilion was curated by Hedy Perkins and Brenda L. Croft and was supported by the non-Indigenous curator Victoria Lynn, who served as exhibition manager. Fluent brought together the work of Emily Kama Nware, Yvonne Kumatri and Judy Watson. Biennales are, in the worlds of Argentinian curator Carlos Basualdo, enormous mechanisms of visibility and Indigenous participation in these transnational events of contemporary art is clearly an intervention into histories of exclusion and invisibility. The Fluent exhibition troubled the inherent nationalist conceit of the Australian Pavilion by claiming a sovereignty and asserting sovereign practices that were between and beyond state recognition. Although these particular claims are often illegible or irrelevant to the West, the insistence on methods that contribute to the re-spiriting of people, practices and places is an important element of Indigenous curation. Seen collectively and individually, these important exhibitionary projects foregrounded Indigenous specificity and opened up thresholds of difference to better represent and apprehend the complexity of Indigenous art. Within this internationalised space of rethinking, the curators and artists productively intervened into existing methodologies and more significantly returned to and created new Indigenous paradigms. Many of these curatorial manoeuvres represent significant modes of indigenization, which I would define as a self-determined and self-determining practice using Indigenous forms of recognition and value. It is worth being attentive to the small and large curatorial gestures that inform both of these exhibitions, as they have become a sort of blueprint for Indigenous exhibitions. Both Fluent and Arajara invoke the urgencies of representational sovereignty, the recalibration of identity, value and definitional regimes of art, and an insistence on Indigenous ways of being, knowing, seeing and becoming. These exhibitions created new and broadened complacent formulations of art and social history, identity, museological practice and temporality, and demonstrates how Indigenous curators have radically reshaped institutional and disciplinary cultures and have contributed to the strengthening of Indigenous art and culture here and internationally. To tease out this praxis in this lecture, I draw on formative statements about the exhibitions as well as retrospective recollections to understand the aspirations of both exhibitions and of the radical structuring consequences. I'd like to begin by mentioning some significant exhibitions that help to contextualise both Arajara and Fluent. One of the most well-known international exhibitions is of course the 1988 exhibition The Dreamings, The Art of Aboriginal Australia. It was a huge success and travelled extensively throughout Australia and the United States. Many Indigenous people, predominantly artists, assisted and their names are listed in the acknowledgement section on the second to last page of the catalogue. Despite these significant contributions by Indigenous people, including a 30-minute documentary by the Wiradjuri Gamilaroi photographer and filmmaker Michael Riley, there was no recognition of Indigenous curatorial input. 
Indeed, the introduction written by Peter Sutton and Christopher Anderson suggests ambivalence around the idea that, and I quote, control of the Aboriginal heritage and its interpretation should lie exclusively with Aborigines, end quote. While many Indigenous organisations deliberately boycotted bicentennial associated events, the year was also one in which Indigenous exhibitions received considerable funding and attention. Gary Foley was Director of the Aboriginal Arts Board of the Australia Council between 1983-86 and in this role he had wanted to organise an exhibition that could tour outside of Australia in 1988 and, in the words of John Mundine, speak directly to the world. In 1984, Gary Foley was invited by Luti to a colloquium in Kunstakademi Dusseldorf, one of a number of art academies that he visited on a speaking tour, to explore an exhibition idea in Germany. This was the same year the exhibition Primitivism in 20th Century Art, Affinity of the Tribal and the Modern, which opened at the Museum of Modern Art New York and inspired much critical discussions and invited curatorial responses. The idea of an Indigenous art exhibition that would not marginalise its makers and would be overseen by an Aboriginal advisory committee began to form with Luti and Foley. While the Dreamings exhibition is well known in Australia, the Magicien de la Terre exhibition is a more significant European comparison and was a direct response to the Primitivism exhibition of 1984-5. Magicien de la Terre, curated by Jean-Hubert Martin, questioned the centrality of Europe and the US in art and was premised on the equitable display of art from Africa, Asia, South America, Australia and the Pacific. Luti was in charge of the Indigenous Australian contribution to the Magicien de la Terre and it featured John Maungel and a collaborative installation from Uindamu, amongst others. Luti and Martin both wrote in the RHG and ideas from outside the West and crucially outside of ethnographic museums where the majority of Indigenous collections were held. For Indigenous people, museums are a site of colonial and ancestral restlessness. For centuries, Indigenous art and Indigenous peoples have been understood as imprisoned in historical time within these institutions. These associations with fixity have been perpetuated by museums and the disciplines that inform them. While Indigenous people came to be seen as dehistoricised and atemporal, the Aratjara catalogue makes the case for positioning Indigenous people not in a mythical time that is divorced from history, but in deep time as active keepers and couriers of history. This temporal reconfiguration allows us to see the smallness of colonial time and that colonisation is emphatically not the meta-narrative of indigeneity. While laying the foundations for Aratjara, Gary Foley spoke at the Kunstakademi in Dusseldorf in December 1984. Foley said, and I quote, Two of the most destructive types of people that Aboriginal people anywhere in the world have encountered are the Christian missionaries and the anthropologist, end quote. Elsewhere, he said that the difference today is that Indigenous people are gaining control of the provisions of the information and that these mistakes in the future will not be made. The twofold mission of this exhibition is made clear, and this denunciation of anthropological practice informed the decision to position the exhibition outside of the realms of ethnographic museums. As John Mundine writes, the three art museums that were selected for Aratjara were all cutting-edge 20th century institutions. 
The refusal to be placed wholly within the past is also a refusal to be denied a future. When Indigenous curators began contributing to the fields of art in the 1980s, they were predominantly interested in positioning Indigenous art within new definitional regimes, such as transitional art, hybrid art, non-traditional and fine art. Much later, the category of the contemporary would be sought. This meaningful, intentional and ongoing shift towards new intermediary categories is surely a defection from the discipline of anthropology, its much larger body of literature and its legacy of temporal deceits. If ethnographic museums epitomise fixity for many Indigenous curators, art museums, by contrast, offered futurity. For Indigenous people, it was clearly advantageous to choose the future. The subtitle of Arajara explicitly states that the exhibition contains both traditional and contemporary art. And while we might assume that it would focus solely on the contemporary, this intentional title suggests a curatorial calculation that is embedded in Indigenous registers of value. The past, present and future do not operate in opposition, but in productive relation to one another. Larrakia artist and curator Gary Lee, who was also the editor of the catalogue, notes in his essay that the separation between anthropological and art historical approaches has narrowed greatly. Anthropologists have become increasingly sensitive to the aesthetic dimension of Aboriginal paintings, just as Australian art historians have become more aware of the vast amounts of anthropological material which they can use to understand Aboriginal art. One can see this in the respective exhibitions and installations of art galleries and museums, which increasingly resemble each other. This quote seems to suggest that art and culture need to be understood interactively and that the choice between both disciplinary models is one that is structured by colonialism and is not representative of the ways in which Indigenous art and culture interrelate. The separation of art from culture, which is implied in the anthropology and art binary, makes no sense to Indigenous people. Nevertheless, with its institutional emphasis on contemporaneity, the exhibition was an attempt to restore Indigenous people not just to the present, but to the power of determining the present. While Indigenous art in Australia has forced an expansion in the institutional spaces that it took up in the 1980s and 1990s, this had not yet translated to the permanent employment of Indigenous curators within institutions that have Indigenous collections. While John Mundine had been given the title of Curator in the Field by the Art Gallery of New South Wales in 1984, it would not be until the appointment of Daphne Wallace, who became the first permanent curator of Indigenous art at a state gallery at the Art Gallery of New South Wales in 1993. In the 1990s, it was becoming increasingly difficult, as art historian Joanna Mendelssohn points out, to mount a significant Aboriginal cultural event without Aboriginal involvement and increasingly Aboriginal control. The Venice Biennale in 1997 was another important moment for Indigenous curators to take control, this time of the representative space of the Australian Pavilion. Croft and Hetty Perkins were assisted by Victoria Lynn, who was then Curator of Contemporary Art at the Art Gallery of New South Wales. Lynn's involvement offered a strategic institutional partnership with the Art Gallery of New South Wales and her extensive knowledge of the international contemporary art world was seen to be invaluable for the Venice Biennale. In addition, Lynn had worked with Hetty Perkins on the Aboriginal Women's Exhibition 1991 and Australian Perspective 1993, both at the Art Gallery of New South Wales, 
and they would refine many of these ideas and transpose them into a tight, internationalised, curatorial premise. Perkins' association with the Art Gallery of New South Wales began in 1990, but it was not until 1998 that she was employed full-time by the gallery. Croft and Perkins had worked together at Bumali, Aboriginal Arts Cooperative, so the curatorial team was experienced in collaborative processes. In late 1995, the Australia Council solicited exhibition proposals for Indigenous women artists, preferably from Indigenous curators for the Australian Pavilion. This exhibition would therefore coincide with the 30th anniversary of the Constitution Alteration, note 1967, known colloquially as the 1967 referendum. But this association was not taken up by the curatorium as a point of either celebration or repudiation. The Australia Council's decision to reinforce an agenda of social inclusivity and feminist leadership by yielding the representative space of the nation to Indigenous artists is significant, as is the appointment of Indigenous curators. The media release prepared by the Australia Council highlighted the racialised and gendered firstness of the curatorium and the artists they represented. While the appointment of Indigenous curators can and should be lauded, there is a more complex curatorial process beyond identity politics that I would suggest is enacted in Fluent. The curatorial mediation that occurs within this cultural context of indigeneity changes both how the viewer experiences and understands an exhibitionary event and how that event itself is produced and organised. For both Croft and Perkins, their involvement in Fluent seemed to secure their institutional curatorial careers. And following her involvement at Venice, Croft was soon appointed as the first Indigenous curator of the Adelaide Biennial of Australian Art at the Art Gallery of South Australia, where she curated the highly influential exhibition Beyond the Pale, which opened in 2000. While working on this exhibition in 1999, she became the first Indigenous curator of Indigenous art at the Art Gallery of Western Australia, a role she carried out until her 2002 appointment at the National Gallery of Australia as the first Indigenous senior curator of Indigenous art in the country. This high profile appointment was demonstrative of the growing recognition and need for Indigenous curation within art institutions in Australia. Hedy Perkins worked as Exhibitions Coordinator and Curator at Bumali from 1992 until 1996, but she was also involved in the exhibition throughout the 1990s at the Art Gallery of New South Wales. Although Perkins was not its first Indigenous curator, her 13-year tenure was highly influential and would shape the Indigenous collection into one of the pre-eminent collections of its kind in the world. These appointments in the late 1990s signalled a new phase in Indigenous curation that would become the template within most, if not all, state and national galleries. And the scale, success and sophistication of the exhibitions under discussion were clearly a motivating factor. Much writing on Indigenous art is concerned with interconnections and forging correspondences, both conceptual and stylistic, with Western forms of art. It is obvious that accreditation by and from the institutions of the art world is and has been important for Indigenous art. Unfortunately, this seems to naturalise the ideas that first, only these institutions have the power to institutionalise and second, their legitimising power is necessary for and to Indigenous art. But it would be misleading to suggest that belonging to or at least competing alongside artists from historical centres of power was of limited use to Indigenous artists and curators, particularly given the high prestige 
of the Venice Biennale or institutions like the Hayward Gallery. Sporadic presentations of Indigenous art within high-level Australian and international settings have made a significant contribution to the currency of Indigenous art, both through these showings and the discourse, both positive and negative, that they produced. But it must be said that Indigenous art is self-possessed of its own differential value and is capable of determining its own distinct valuations. Returning to Fluent, the premise of the exhibition immediately deprioritised modernist binaries and dualities and instead brought itself closer to formulations of the contemporary, formulations that are outlined by art historians Ian McLean and Terry Smith. These associations of interconnectedness, covalency, and multiplicity were reflected in the curatorial process and through selected works of art, anticipating shifts in constructions of the global. These shifts would soon overshadow the insistent manoeuvres of the post-colonial turn that was premised on the importance of political agitations. Perkins' curatorial essay is full of methodological provocations and insights that are sketched out in its opening paragraphs. The exhibition concept gestured at fluidity, movement between, beyond and through territorial, linguistic, political and categorical boundaries. The watery canals of Venice were used as a metaphor of passage and the motif of the stripe as a visual analogy of flow and possibility. It is telling that by the fourth paragraph of the catalogue, Perkins asserts that the artist will, and I quote, test the parameters of Western and Indigenous art traditions, end quote. In fact, this intentional boundary writing is integral to the contestation that takes place in the exhibition. Perkins writes in the catalogue, the subtle connections between their works are suggestive of being part of a continuous ebb and flow, looking to traditions and precedents outside conventional Western sources of inspiration. Indigenous art is about far more than the opportunity to challenge or invigorate the Western art canon. These readings of opposition or inspiration demonstrably centre the West. The contemporary is, of course, international, but it cannot only be Western. In contrast to the binaries of modernism and primitivism, the contemporary opens up and creates passages across new modes of temporality and being that are meaningfully interconnective. As art historian Roger Benjamin puts it, we must devise a criticism more attuned to Aboriginal cultural values. Similarly, Andrew McNamara picks up on Vivian Johnson's caution against the acceptance of works as contemporary art at the expense of countervailing Indigenous cultural imperatives. Despite the thoughtful articulation of Indigenous modes of value, Indigenous art is nevertheless subjected to external modes of value and appreciation. Only months before the fluent opening, pioneering gallerist Gabrielle Pitsy had unsuccessfully put forward a proposal to exhibit Indigenous art at Art Basel. Hostility to Indigenous art was still very much alive and her bid was rejected and signalled the residual determinative power of Euro-American genealogies of art. Tracy Moffat, however, was included in Art Basel. Later in 1997, David Throsby reported this incident in Art Monthly Australia. Despite the success of the Tracy Moffats, the attitude to Australian Aboriginal art is distinctively cool there. When I spoke to the general manager of the fair, Lorenzo Rudolph, 
Earlier this year, he told me his selection committee felt that letting in recognisably Indigenous work from Australia would open the floodgates to primitive, tribal and folk art from all around the world. Not only does this view trivialise the work of Indigenous artists from other countries, it suggests that the Basel selectors place all Australian Aboriginal art in the category of objects sold in souvenir shops and at airports. An artist who refused these categorizations is Nyarinjeri artist Yvonne Kumatri. Influent, the work of Judy Watson and Emily Karma Nwari partakes of the formal language of modernist painting traditions, both deliberately and incidentally. On the other hand, Yvonne Kumatri's work sits less securely in historical formations of the canon of fine art, let alone contemporary art. The curators included the work of Kumatri not because of its associations with craft and the related stigma, but in spite of these things, demonstrating a steadfast commitment to productively blur the apparent conventions of the Venice Biennale. Learning the customary coiled bundle weaving technique from Nerangeri elder Dorothy Cartinieri in the early 1980s, Kumatri initially created faithful renditions of functional cultural objects, such as eel traps, burial mats and food collecting vessels. Excited by the sculptural potential of woven sedge grass, Kumatri freed her imagination to breathe life into the fantastical woven articulations that are now her trademark. Yvonne Kumatri has almost single-handedly rewritten the language of weaving and broadened its aesthetic possibilities. In his review of the Biennale, John MacDonald said of Kumatri's fibre objects that and I quote, here they looked out of place, end quote. Within the Venice Biennale, where newness and innovation are highly prized, the decision to highlight references to historic Nyarangeri basketry rather than the radical departures suggests a considered curatorial calculation. Despite the risks, the curatorium refused to be subservient to the Western canon, choosing instead to question Western canonicity itself and offering and insisting on alternative modes of value and engagement. The curatorial decision to problematize, and I quote, the highly contentious boundaries of art and craft practice, end quote, can be seen as an intentional provocation to these boundaries. Croft elaborates on the curatorial position in an interview with Russell Storer and hints at the limited use of these historical but arbitrary categories for indigenous people and artists. I've always had problems with the notion of craft, art, and anyone who works in these areas of craft will tell you how frustrating it is for them to be seen as lesser than high art. It's such a Western notion. Kumatri's experimental and exploratory works in local grasses awakened an interest in a vanishing cultural practice. And as a teacher and practitioner, she has played a pivotal role in the revitalizing weaving, securing its position as contemporary art. In Aratjara, there was a similar project to position Indigenous art not within the category of art, but to suggest that Indigenous art exceeds the Western definitions of art. For Indigenous people, art is more than art. Painting is more than painting. Sculpture is more than sculpture. Performance is more than performance. Even a cursory understanding of the multimodality of Indigenous art suggests that art making is not merely illustration, but can often be real-time communion with ancestral subjectivity. The English word art falls short and presents us with an insufficient means of registering the poetic surplus and extra discursive significations of indigenous art and culture making. 
The beautiful rainforest shields from Queensland, which were included in the show, were always a source of fascination due to their associations of warfare. And they are highlighted not just for their bold designs, but also for their associations with ritual practice. Resisting interpretive banalities, Arajara demonstrating the importance of multiple, not singular points of access into these works, so that audiences could apprehend the totality or at least the complexity of, in, of objects that partake simultaneously of the political, the cultural, the ceremonial, the spiritual and the sensate world. Bidjara academic Marcia Langton describes Aboriginality as a field of intersubjectivity that is remade over and over again in a process of dialogue, of imagination, of representations and interpretation. Like Orientalism, Aboriginality is a product of Eurocentrism, which has occasioned a crisis of representation and a crisis of identity. The expectation to participate in identity politics is coercive, often punitive and utterly exhausting. While it is necessary to both understand and deprioritize these projections of Aboriginal identity, it is more important to mobilise new or rather cultural presentations that may be less familiar to non-Indigenous people but are more resonant and uplifting for Indigenous peoples. Articulating a cultural belonging that is not subservient or even intelligible to the nation-state is an expression of cultural power. The prevailing Aboriginality that had been embraced by Australians in the 1970s was an Aboriginality that was distant, remote and traditional. This identity was structured by and through its relationship to place and to ancient ancestral reference. These associations would become a highly and problematically prized signifier of authenticity. The emphasis on ancestral subjectivity often served to place Indigenous people and their concerns into the past. By extension, Indigenous people are conceptually filtered out of the experiences and features of the modern world. This interpretive framework has depoliticizing consequences as the historical legacies of colonization could be conveniently ignored. New expressive forms of Aboriginality that deviated from these reductive representations would be curtailed under the umbrella category of urban art. The producers of this urban art were in closer geographical proximity to centres of colonial power. They were biracial or bicultural, they were political agitators and were conversant in Western contemporary life. This Aboriginality was harder to recognise, to legitimise and to accept. In his 1990 Venice Biennale essay on Rover Thomas and Trevor Nichols, Australian Aboriginal Art Convergence and Divergence, Michael O'Farrell similarly tries to create complexity in these all-embracing categories of Aboriginality. He touches on the recurrent dichotomies of town bush, Aboriginal European, traditional contemporary, and in more recent times, Australian European Asian. While the urban remote binary of Rover Thomas and Trevor Nichols was intentionally deployed by the curator as much as Nichols himself, it invariably tethered the artist to these narrow identitarian typologies. While the Dreamings exhibition in New York included work of urban and southeast artists in the catalogue, they were not featured in the exhibition. In contrast, Arajara featured the works of southeast and urban-based Indigenous artists, including Gordon Bennett, who also wrote in the catalogue about the pressures of identity formation. He writes, There came a time in my life, in my sense of self and identity as an Australian, when I became aware of my Aboriginal heritage. 
This may seem of no consequence to the subject at hand, but when the weight of European representation of Aboriginal people as the quintessential primitive other is realised, and perhaps understood as a certain level of abstraction involving a discourse of self and other, with which we become familiar in our books and our classrooms, but which we rarely feel on our pulses, then it may be seen that such an awareness was problematic for my sense of identity. The conceptual gap between my sense of self and other collapse, and I was thrown into turmoil. The Aboriginality that is sketched out here is an identity of crisis. It is created by non-Aboriginal people and projected onto Aboriginal people. It is this anxiety of being constructed that Bennett observes and the Indigenous authors in the catalogue resolutely reject. Arajara was similarly engaged in these issues and rather than be pulled into defensive positions around urban and or remote, largely unhelpful categories, the artists were placed in an amplified chorus of voices, demonstrating their right to cultural difference. This approach is perhaps condensed even more with fluent. The curatorium insisted on nuancing these terminological formations which would not eliminate them but re-inscribe them. Riddling these significations with ambiguity and contradiction, they restructured the divisional and oppositional premise of these representations in favour of, and I quote, a spectrum of Indigenous experience. In the interview with Russell Storer, Croft elaborates on the categories of remote, urban and regional in their expanded form, but her reasoning suggests neither indifference nor hostility towards these labels. Rather, she works up to set an equivalence between the categories. If you really want to try and touch bases, which you weren't trying to do, but a woman from a traditional community, Nware, absolutely steeped in traditional law and culture, and yet probably the leading contemporary artist in this country, let alone Indigenous contemporary artists, then you have Judy, who's gone through tertiary training and taken overseas re residencies everywhere and brings her work back into her own personal family history. And you've got Yvonne, who's from a regional area. It isn't about political correctness. It's about three artists whose work absolutely works together and is of the standing to be shown over in Venice. While Croft is at pains to move away from an exhibition premised on a typological schema, the three artists selected nevertheless inhabit these diverse subject positions. Her frustration is not with these categories per se, but with their relentless policing. Emily Kama Enwari was represented in the Venice Biennale with her so-called stripe paintings, which began to appear in 1993, and in a similar way the curatorium is trying to open up thresholds of meaning. These were a revolutionary departure from her earlier paintings on canvas, which had been laid in fields of dense dotting. Layering is also an important conceptual part of Enwari's practice. Um, what can be seen is only half the world. The ancestral layers beneath the ground give meaning to what is above. It is the surfacing of these unseen forces, latent in the ground, moving through the body and onto the canvas, that gives the work its cultural signification. While the dot has become an icon of Indigenous painting known throughout the world, this geographically situated painting form has also come to represent the entire field of Indigenous art production. Determined to show that Indigenous art was not just dot and bark paintings, in the curator's words, the curatorium were drawn to the stripe as it is globally occurring. However, art historian Rex Butler observes that it was precisely because Inwari's work 
did look so similar to the kinds of works which, which critics were familiar, it seemed to license a new language when talking about Aboriginal art. But within this familiar visual language, the curators could underwrite the work's Indigenous specificity. The artist's name Karma refers to the wild yam seed and flower, and in real and symbolic ways, she represents the potential of this bush food to germinate, to proliferate, to nourish. These yam offerings from the earth are modest dietary staples, but they signify the power of ceremony, song and interconnection. Indigenous people see themselves not as separate from the natural world, but as a necessary part of its continuing seasonal rhythms. When these yams are ready to be harvested, they cause small cracks to appear in the earth. These cracks on the surface of the earth open up thresholds of the sacred and are, as Hetty Perkins observes, like fluid rivers of spiritual power that sustain and nurture Aboriginal people and the land. By inscribing these tuberous designs onto bodies, canvas or paper, Inwari becomes enmeshed in an expansive system of belonging, participating in and realising the promise of the ancestors. The non-representative paintings are representative of the life cycles, life ways and life worlds of those who belong to them. These life ways and life worlds are also at the crux of Judy Watson's practice. Her mood-sewed canvases possess an exquisitely calibrated surface texture and by intuitively working washes of pigment and stains of ochre into her paintings, she reveals much about her spiritual and intellectual engagement with the world. Belonging to the Wanyi people, Watson is one of Australia's most respected artists and her appearance at the Venice Biennale was one of her career highlights. If Inouye's work gave the exhibition its dominant motif, Watson's work exemplified and amplified an indigenous responsiveness to place that highlighted the curatorial premise of Fluent. Many of Watson's works for Fluent responded to the city of Venice, which cannot be separated from its waterways or from water itself. These works teased out the connective and disconnective properties of water expanses to pose questions about territoriality, political ecology, embodied learning and the responsibilities of global citizenship. Canyon, which is now in the collection of the National Gallery of Australia, Canberra, was made specifically for the Venice Biennale. This large painting, which is almost six metres long, refers to an experience that the artist had while floating through a water-filled canyon and observing the patterns of compressed geologic time on the walls of the limestone cliffs. On her way home, Watson noticed white fungus on the trees that seemed to glow like torches under the moonlight to lead her back to her car. She was reminded about the life force that exists in the land, which can be a guide for those who apprehend it. The painting itself is a dreamlike aggregation of cultural memory and personal subjectivity and embodies Watson's commitment to what she describes as learning from the ground up. This alertness to place is similarly manifest in Red Tides, which was also in the exhibition and is now in the collection of the Art Gallery of New South Wales. On seeing the reports of red algae blooms that appear when there is too much nitrogen in Sydney Harbour, Watson was reminded about the history of whaling and Aboriginal massacres where the water turned red with blood. She connects this watery visual episode to the auditory experience of being in Venice, saying, the sound of the water is everywhere, especially at high tide. You can hear the waves against the buildings, licking history away. Remembering historical vulnerabilities, she affirms the importance of holding on to memories, 
often the body itself is the site of this archive. Antonio Carver writes, Watson's process of excavation, of immersing herself in her subject, has a depth that translates to her work so vividly at times that the paintings seem to be imbued with an otherworldly presence. The objects, lives and mythologies that populate the land appear to inhabit the paintings. The built-up layers of pigment and trails and flecks of colour on the undulating surface of the canvas evoke the archaeologist's method of delicately revealing and later concealing shrouds of history. As part of the vernissage, Russell Page, choreographer, dancer, musician and actor from the Nunukul people and principal dancer at Bangara Aboriginal Dance Theatre, was commissioned to interpret the themes of fluent. Sometimes he would play the didgeridoo and at other times the performances would be silent. The press release announced the performances in the following way. In the tradition of the Carnivala, Russell weaves his way through the streets and alleys of Venice like an elusive spirit figure. Painted up by Judy Watson in the same iconography as her paintings, he proceeded to move through the streets of Venice, becoming an anthropomorphic presence. His performance didn't bring the paintings to life, but rather demonstrated their inherent liveliness. Exquisite memories of place are evoked through the individual practice of the three artists influent. While these territorial claims are subtle and poetic, they infer a prior relationship to place before the imposition of the state. At its core, fluent was insistently local, despite its interpolation of the global. Although these works have a real stake in an internationalised dialogue, it is clear, particularly in the environmental works of Judy Watson, that these artists and curators are less concerned with the globe and more interested in the earth. Their commitment to maintaining the sacredness and vitality of the earth through regimens of artistic, cultural and curatorial care underscore the earth-centred practices and earth-centred knowledge at the heart of the exhibition. Increasing the visibility of Indigenous people and by extension Indigenous art and culture has been a vital motivation for many Indigenous curators. It is for this reason that many of them have chosen to work within sites of significant cultural capital. Indigenous curators are not oblivious to the historic dynamics of power that are present within dominant institutions, but it is vital that we do not give too much determinative power to these institutions and the regimes they represent. When it comes to Indigenous art, the interpretive struggle is not to recognise that not only does it have a different value to Western art, but it has to be valued differently. To secure a non-colonial future, to gesture towards modes of indigenization, it is vital to do more than forget dominant colonial tropes. There is a need to remember Indigenous precedents, to encourage Indigenous innovations, to insist on geographically situated art practices, and to actively courier this knowledge to the generations yet to come. These exhibitions are both the messenger and the message.